Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 65 of the Flip Mike podcast. It is such a privilege and honor to have Professor Preston Foster back, um, and soon the uh, members of the Oakwood University United Collegiate Black Scholars will be joining us, um, hopefully not too long from now, but I'm grateful to have this group on because it's a group of young people, young HBCU students, uh, dedicated to the cause of not just social change, but concrete, specific legislative proposals that can get the ball mo moving forward. And I myself have had a privilege and honor to be a member of this group. And so I'm happy to have some of the members on tonight. So that for the, I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, Professor Foster and some of the members on once again. So again, we have uh, Ms. Zoe Dorsett, who is a graduating Oakwood senior uh, who's managing, majoring in pre-law. Uh, she's an active member of Phi Alpha Delta and is serving as treasurer in Oakwood's own United Collegiate Black Scholars. So thank you, Ms. Dorsett, for being on. We also have Professor Awesome, awesome. So we also have Professor Foster, who's no get uh, you know stranger to the political mic. Um, he is a founding president and CEO of what they should say.org. Um, he's also the assistant professor and program director of public policy at Oakwood University. Um, he is also uh, an alum of the Harvard Kennedy School, where he holds um, where he uh, earned a master's in public administration, and he's also um, a alum of the Wharton School of Business, where he completed some executive studies, and also <clears throat> an alum, of course, of Oakwood University, where he holds a bachelor, a BS in business administration. And so we'll be joined by Colby. Oh, actually, they're here. So I'm also going to introduce these uh, other two members of the UCBS. Uh, grateful to have you both on. Um, so we have Colby, Mat Colby Matlock, who's a, De a Delaware native and senior of Oakwood University, uh, majoring in public policy with a minor in chemistry. He currently serves as a vice president of Oakwood's political science club, uh, United Collegiate Black Scholars, and he has a strong interest in public po uh, policy formation and politics. And, and in his spare time, he also enjoys keeping up with content, uh, current events, and listening to music. So Colby, thanks for being back on. And we also have uh, Miss Tiffany Taylor, who is from Miami, Florida, currently attending Open University as a rising senior majoring in pre-law with a minor in biology. Her hobbies include creative writing and painting, and her career goal is to become a, a patent lawyer. Um, and so she is currently a secretary uh, of the United Collegiate Black Scholars. She's the political club. Uh, she's in this political club, which was founded by the pre-law department and public policy program. Grateful to have each of you on. And without further ado, I just want to jump right into the conversation. There's so much to talk about. I mean, there's so much going on. We have a, a, a shortage on baby formula. Uh, President Biden has enacted the Defense Production Act. Uh, we have, um, you know, the ongoing, we're in day 84 of the war in Ukraine. We um, are also um, in the middle of still an ongoing inflation. Um, and we also have rising gas prices. Uh, we just came off the heels of primaries, uh, some primary elections this past week. And the big question on everyone's minds is how much power, how much power and weight does Trump's endorsement hold? And we've seen it in the uh, success so far of Dr. Mehmet Oz running for Pennsylvania Senate against David McCormick, uh, who was a traditional business conservative, uh, probably in the mold of uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, we've also seen it in his endorsement of J.D. Vance, um, who came out victorious last week. Um, and now he will be facing off against Tim Ryan, Congressman of Ohio. Uh, and so it's a mixed bag is what I'm hearing some pundits say as we also look to Georgia and we see that David Perdue is about 30 points behind, 30 points behind uh, the current governor. But of course, this, the UCBS is concerned primarily with public policy. So I want to open up the floor uh, with a question about the organization 
And so I want to ask you all, what makes the United Collegiate Black Scholars different from groups like Black Lives Matter? You have so many other social groups on campuses around the country. What distinguishes the UCBS, United Collegiate Black Scholars, from all of these other organizations? Anyone can jump in. So when we're looking at UCBS, um, the purpose of United Collegiate Black Scholars is to bring originality and ingenuity of Black people in HBCUs by redefining public policy and adjusting problems and being involved in politics and spreading awareness. Um, we so far focus on things such as voting suppression, voting acts rights, um, educational policy, and so many more topics that will help expand the Black community as a whole. Awesome. Yeah, maybe I can provide just a little background and history because UCBS was founded at Oakwood uh, during the 2015-2016 campaign season when Hillary Clinton uh, and others were vying for the Democratic nomination. And it became very clear that whoever won the Black vote would win the Democratic nomination. Uh, if you fast forward to 2020, the same thing was true. As you might recall that um, former Vice President Biden had not won a primary until South Carolina. And when the primaries moved to South Carolina, uh, Jim Clyburn basically anointed um, uh, Joe Biden with the black vote. And the day after Kamala Harris and um, uh, Buttigieg dropped, dropped out of the race. So basically in both uh, 2016 and in 2020, whoever clearly uh, was the recipient of the black vote was the de facto nominee of the Democratic Party. But for that, basically all we got were promises and the prom and one promise was kept that uh, Joe Biden did nominate and and we did get confirmed the first black woman on the Supreme Court. And that's no small matter. But um, uh, Michael, when you were a student at Oakwood, you recall that many of uh, our students were uh, active with um, APAC, um, the American Israeli Political Action Committee. And although we did not share hardly any common ground with APAC, we do respect how powerful and how influential they are. And so UCBS is trying is is put it is put together to basically channel the power of the black vote into actual legislation and 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 political support for candidates who support the, legislation, the, the legislative agenda that is formulated by UCBS. So that brings me to my next question. And, and what is exactly the agenda of the United Collegiate Black Scholars? Could you shed any light, anyone, on what the agenda is of the organization and how, how do you all seek to enact this agenda and influence public policy, influence public policy makers uh, to jump on board, you know, especially now we're in election season. And a lot of the focus of this election season is whether or not the Democrats can make a convincing argument that they are tackling the ongoing uh, crisis uh, adequately as opposed to playing whack-a-mole 
with these crises. Um, you know, you've got multiple things going on at the same time, the economic crises, you've got the war abroad, um, but you also still have Biden's legislative agenda, which seems to have been just put on freeze. Once once Manchin went to Fox News and said, I will not support Build Back Better. I just can't bring myself to support this legislation. So how does the UCBS fit into all of this? Anyone? I can definitely speak on this briefly. Um, the interesting thing about uh, UCBS is this is mostly comprised of HBCU students. This is mostly, um, it's, it's something that started at Oakwood. And so the important thing about this is um, through looking at current events, through looking at uh, political issues, policy issues, uh, social justice issues, uh, we're trying to really formulate um, an agenda that reflects the priorities of the black community. And by doing so, we not only help those, uh, as Professor Foster said, candidates that are you know trying to get the black vote but we also help our community as a whole and this is only done by of course analyzing uh any of the political or policy issues that we may have um coming up with solutions networking to find other people that are like-minded and also solving these same problems so that's a very important thing about UCBS. that's awesome and and so in the pursuit of those goals um i'm interested uh, you know, Professor Foster, I remember, you know, when, when, when we had the, when you had the idea and you brought it to the class um, and the, the, your exact words were, let's roll with this thing, you know, and that's how we just started to break off into groups and we started to come up with different proposals. And this was uh, 2016 and, it, and you yourself said, this is a very weird election. It was a very strange election. It was a change election, an election where you saw folks leaving from the Bernie camp and going to the Trump camp, which was weird. Folks leaving from the Trump camp and going to the Bernie camp because that's where most of the momentum throughout the entire campaign was. Um, so I'm curious to see, you know, you have so many groups out there. Um, you know, you've got abortion rights groups now getting a new wind uh, in light of the Supreme Court leaked opinion uh, last week. You have, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, like we discussed earlier. We have immigration groups who are growing impatient with, with Biden, um, not moving more aggressive on that front. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on what kinds of um, coalitions um, uh, do you see the UCBS forming in the near future? or if, And if you have already developed some partnerships, uh, we'd like to hear. Anyone? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll just begin the conversation. And I, I really want to hear from my younger colleagues because the primary purpose of UCBS is to define the Black political agenda by the younger generation. Uh, if you just listen to the name, United Collegiate Black Scholars. So we're looking to engage, as I said, Jim Clyburn, who I love, but he's in, Mr. Clyburn's in his 70s. And his priorities reflect that of the, 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 the uh, Black establishment, the Black civil rights era, et cetera. We're looking to engage the younger generation that we assume have some of the same priorities of the older generation, but many different priorities that would bring them out to the polls. And I'll let Zoe and others expand on that. Um, yes. So, so far we have connected with other colleges and universities, specifically HBCUs. Um, we have also connected with politicians and even some 
Oakwood alumni who are interested in uh, the continual growth and development of Oakwood University students um, as a whole, organizations and individuals, and I guess some universities uh, that we share the same vision with, we have uh, gotten to develop relationships with them. So some of the universities are uh, the University of Alabama in Huntsville and Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical University. Uh, also, is it JFC Drake and uh, those are some of the universities off of the top of my head. If I could also piggyback off of that as well. Um, as, as Zoe said, this year was actually a very good year for uh, UCBS in terms of just getting ourselves um, immersed into the community. Um, the first semester we had uh, the pleasure of going out into the community districts uh, four of Huntsville, just to talk about uh, gerrymandering and um, just some other things uh, along that lines. And in doing so, we're no stranger to Alabama and then we're no stranger to Drake University. We went there a, a few times, not only to just uh, spread the word about some of the events that we were having, some of the ideas that we were uh, trying to get out there, but um, we also got in, in contact with uh, Councilman John Meredith, um, who was pretty instrumental in uh, talking about some of these issues uh, with the community. Not only that, we've also been able to reach out, you know, with the institution of Oakwood, uh, you know, through Profe uh, Professor Foster here, and uh, also through um, those that are willing to come out uh, in our policy symposium. Uh, we spoke about issues that are very important to uh, not only the black community uh, as a whole, but just important in general for everyone. We talked about intersectionality. We talked about church and state. We talked about, um, the last one is, 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 is left in my mind, but this is, this, is this whole, thank you so much. Education, um, educate the, the improving the education system. But we had guests, uh, Brianna Crawford, Anton Dormer, Dania Henry, these are um, uh, important topics that people are interested in, they're doing research on, and they're willing to say and, and, and tell others about. So this is why it's important because this is relevant information that affects everyone. This is things that everyone needs to know. This is stuff that affects us. So um, it's just, it's very beautiful that we have an organization that is highlighting these issues, that is giving you know a platform to those that are willing to speak on it. Um, that opportunity, so, yeah. And Kobe said it so well, and I'm, I'm so thrilled at, to have these leaders that, that you see on your screen um, uh, running UCBS uh, this coming year, because as he said, our kind of three-legged stool um, is social um, justice, educational equity, and church and state. And I'll, I'll be clear that uh, as Oakwood is a uh, Christian-based school, um, that is kind of a unique space that we hold, but it's not so unique that people who have different priorities can't embrace it because what has happened with uh, Judge Alito's leaked decision that would undercut Roe, if you read it carefully, he spent a lot of time not under not only undercutting the Roe decision, the 1973 Roe versus, uh, excuse me, the, the, the Roe uh, decision, but also the 1992 Casey decision that incorporated the um, 14th Amendment into the basis of the um, privacy decision. 
And I know that may sound arcane to people, but what the 1992 Casey decision said is that the 14th Amendment is where the privacy right resides and the 14th Amendment incorporates the Bill of Rights into the states. So the 14th Amendment was basically helping to end slavery and protect the newly freed slaves. But it also said uh, to kind of dilute states' rights that all of the 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights apply to the states, which includes the separation of church and state applying to the states. Yep. So Judge Alito is undercutting all of that, which would position each state, if, if they choose, to establish their own state-level religion. Yeah. And so this is uh, part of our uh, unique um, uh, area of focus, along with social justice, justice and educational policy. So uh, UCBS... Uh, is looking for partners on all three of these major uh, uh, issue areas. Uh, and I, we hope that in bringing in these partners, we can also align people who whose first priority might be uh, a woman's right to choose, but to help them understand how a woman's right to choose also touches on these other important First Amendment issues. Yeah. And, and that's so important because, you know, last week and this week, I, I was thinking a lot about my constitutional law one and two class in law school. And one of the cases was Eisenstadt versus Bard. And the Supreme Court, this is 1972, the year before Roe versus Wade, mm -hmm. that if the right to privacy means anything, it's the right of the individual, married or single, to be free from unwarranted government intrusion into matters so fundamentally affecting the person as the decision whether or not to bear children. And this, you know, a lot of people, evangelical groups, pro-life groups are saying um, that this is about abortion. But this right to privacy, you know, as you mentioned, Professor, is so much more than abortion. Oh, you're talking about the freedom of religion, First Amendment being under attack now. Mm -hmm. You're talking about it's just trickling. It has a it, it long lasting consequences and, and other facets of public policy. And, and so groups like this group, the United States of Black Scholars, is important not only to enact policy, but to educate the public. Uh, any other thoughts on this? Kind of going off of what you said, educating the public. Um, I hate to say this, but like a lot of like collegiate uh, age black students, we don't really know that much about what is going on. And we are kind of where we're depending on our parents to kind of help us form our own political stance going on about uh, these things. So as uh, UCBS, us educating the public really, and like starting at Oakwood, it's very important for us to uh, kind of get this thing off of the, the ground so that we could, because education in my opinion is power. And without education, we're not able to really take back our power. Yeah, and um, you know, Tiffany is is uh, leading out. Uh, Michael, you might recall we had an organization called the Dialogue, and the Dialogue brings important issues to the forefront and helps to educate 
people on the issue or at least to help them hear the other sides of the issue. Um, part of education is not just understanding what you believe in and fortifying your own beliefs, but understanding those who have a different point of view and hearing that. And uh, that's a lot of what we hope to bring uh, to the table under Tiffany's leadership as well. And so I'm curious because we, we do have a myriad of laws being passed on the state le uh, legislative level. Uh, you've got Florida Senate Bill 90, uh, which imposes a long list of new constraints on mail voting. Uh, and this law limits the availability and accessibility of mail ballot drop, drop boxes and requires voters to put their state ID number or social security number on the mail ballot application without providing an alternative for voters who lack this kind of information. You've got Georgia SB 202, which is a, you know, that, that law has a ban on food and water. Plus uh, it has subtle attacks on mail voting and local election officials. Um, you've got Iowa Senate file 413 criminalizing election officials for uh, protecting voters. The law imposes a number of new penalties uh, and restrictions on election officials, including a provision that requires county elect election officials for criminal pr uh, prosecution if they don't implement the law's aggressive new voter roll purge provisions. Montana also enacted a law ending a popular policy for partisan reasons. Um, Texas, you know, I mean, how does the UCBS navigate in the country where we already have the removal of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act? So that was the the the, the teeth that was in that, um, you know, landmark piece of legislation. How does the UCBS navigate enacting its agenda, influencing public policymakers, when there's such an attack on the right to vote on the state level, um, and especially as we're heading into this midterm election, uh, we're, we're now entering the phase where we're transitioning from primary to general elections. And so the focus is more narrow now. You're going to see a lot of more campaigning ads. You're gonna, there's going to be a more um, strong effort to, to, to restrict uh, the different avenues in which voters can participate in the electoral process. How does the UCBS navigate in that kind of environment? If I may start, um, I do believe before you know you can you can tackle such a countrywide nationwide issue, you always have to start at home, and I feel like with UCBS, the foundation that we're making, the networking that we're doing, the communication that we're having, the conversations that we're having, the research that we're doing, the reading that we're doing, all that is important because morally we have an obligation to not only do these things for the betterment of ourselves, but also for the betterment of the community, and right now where we're stationed at in Huntsville, of course, we definitely have ambitions to do this nationwide, but you always have to start at home. And I feel like that's really the biggest thing. It's what can we do in Huntsville? What can we do in District 4? What can we do in Huntsville? What can we do you know, at Oakwood University? What can we do at Alabama a and What can we do at Drake University? So we always have to start at home first. And, and, and I, I hope I'm not being too presumptuous to say this, but Oakwood is in Huntsville, Alabama. And Alabama is the state that has the most HBCUs of any state. Uh, Alabama is also the state where the Shelby Hold Holder decision uh, pivoted from. Uh, Shelby County is simply a, a southern suburb of Birmingham. So we believe that we are literally here on purpose and that uh, by uh, engaging this young, younger, younger generation, of scholars, and that includes not only uh, people who are 
uh, undergraduates now, but also high school students, also recent graduates who are credentialed, such as yourself, Michael, um, and articulating for them not only what the issues are, but what the proposed solutions are, so that we can go to them and say, here is a tangible reason for you to come out and vote. Here are tangible things that we will withhold from any candidate unless these tangible things become their top priority. Uh, and we will hold uh, candidates and successful candidates accountable for delivering on the issues that they committed to. Um, again, to use the, the APAC um, analogy, the Jewish community for better and for worse has used to be almost exclusively democratic. They have, they have now uh, become unpredictable because the party that used to basically hold them at arm's length, the Republican Party, has now become one of their closest allies. Um, that is because they have made their priorities clear and with, withheld or rewarded votes from any party or any candidate that doesn't um, not only embrace their priorities, but act on them. And so, you know, being that this is a political mic, I, I just want to just extend my gratitude for the, the, the way in which you guys were able to just succinctly explain the mission, the objectives, the goals, the direct, the vision for this incredible organization. I hope that Madison Democrats are watching, but I do want to pivot the conversation away. It's a little bit more uh, politics, national politics, uh, because we just had an interesting uh, primary election into this past Tuesday. Um, my favorite election, of course, took place last week with the Ohio race. Um, I'm going, I'm really hoping that uh, Tim Ryan can pull it out. I think he's an excellent candidate. Um, now he'll be facing off against J.D. Vance, who was endorsed by Donald Trump. But you also have a situation now this week where Donald Trump's endorsed candidate seems to be in a deadlock race with someone who's more establishment, Dave McCormick. Um, you know, when I last looked at the polling, Mehmet Oz is at 31.2% followed by David McCormick at 31.3%. So this, you know, as they would say in the, in the South, this race is tighter than a, snout, a rattlesnake stuck in a drain pipe. So I'm wondering what you guys think about Mehmet Oz's chances uh, to face off against um, John Fetterman, who's an interesting character himself. He looks like he could be a Hell's Rider, <laughs> Hell's Angels bike rider. Um, he's been campaigning in, 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 in sweatsuits and hoodies, um, but he's wiped the floor with, the, with uh, Connor Lamb. Um, who had a lot of endorsements by establishment Democrats. Um, and so I want to get your thoughts on this particular race, um, Emmett Oz's chances, and what, you know, if Oz does win, right, it, it won't, it will be by a hair. But what does that say about Trump's power in the GOP? In a lot, like, keep in mind the fact that Purdue is still behind, <laughs> significantly behind uh, Kemp in Georgia. Anyone? So it appears that Trump appears to vouch for individuals who are leading an election instead of the ones that he would truly and should promote had he given it much time and careful thought. Um, it has frustrated various of his supporters and members of the Republican Party 
causing notable division among them. But in a nutshell, Trump holds on the Republican Party is on decline as he continues to make decisions. I think we lost Tiffany. And okay. he has lost respect among several prominent individuals as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Tiffany uh, nailed it. it. It's interesting because if, um, if Dr. Oz prevails, uh, I think you have some Republican traditionalists that may withhold their vote in the general election. And if Dr. Oz wins the primary uh, nomination, um, it will be interesting, excuse me, if he loses the nomination, uh, Donald Trump has already poisoned the well by saying, if, if Oz loses, it's because of more quote unquote voter fraud or um, unreliable election um, outcomes. And so um, Fetterman is in a very good position, I believe in Pennsylvania, because Fetterman is kind of a blue collar white guy. We know he has some health issues. He just had a stroke. So he needs to really um, uh, buck up um, and look vigorous during this campaign. But his appeal is basically to blue collar white voters. Um, But again, that's where um, uh, organizations like UCBS and, and the young black vote means so much. One of our graduates, Chris Johnson, uh, uh, we have a picture of of Joe Biden almost ready to to kiss Chris in the mouth because Chris delivered the vote in Philadelphia that gave Joe Biden the state of Pennsylvania. We're going to need that kind of turnout again in order for Fetterman to win. And if there's any division in the Republican Party uh, that that. dilutes their vote, then the Democrats could do surprisingly well in the Senate uh, in November, because I believe the Democrats can win Ohio uh, and Pennsylvania. uh, And if they win both of those, they should be able to hold on to the Senate. And that's the thing. The thing that's different between Ohio and Pennsylvania is that in Ohio, you had about three candidates who were jockeying for Trump's endorsement, right? And and then it was more of a gap between J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel, Josh Mandel coming in around 23%, and J.D. Vance coming in at around uh, 32.2%. That's a much wider gap than what we're seeing right now with Oz and McCormick, and the race still hasn't been called, of course. But, you know, it's, the, the race is so tight, you can bounce a quarter off of it because and, – and so there's a, there's, there's, there's a difference in – like Tiffany mentioned, the, the the staying power of Trump's endorsement. And then the other thing is, didn't they learn their lesson with Georgia in 2021, January? You know, you tell the people it's rigged. You tell the people there's no point in voting. And what happens? They say, well, if it's rigged, why am I wasting my time coming out on a line <laughs> to support someone that's obviously bound to lose? And then you pair that with someone who looks like folks uh, who are coming off of, you know, you know, look like folks who who, who like are hard a- AFL CIO supporters, people who are like barstool blue collar kind of, you know, Democrats in Josh Fetterman, and you got a strong strong candidate. So everyone's talking about how the Republicans are just going to just glide into 
the majority in the Senate, in the House, or even both. And I'm, I'm pushing back on that because I'm looking at the specific candidates who are, they're putting up, mm-hmm. you know, J.D. Vance has, you know, in addition to the fact that there's been a focus on his flip-flop on Trump, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can obviously make a case that he would, he would literally stand for anything that would get him a vote. Um, and then you look at Mehmet Oz. What are your thoughts on Mehmet Oz's <laughs> chances of running for um, Senate against, um, you know, Fetterman? Um, Oz, of course, who recently became a Pennsylvania citizen. He went to school in Pennsylvania, but he was voting in a different state not too long ago, a few months ago. Um, well, I'll just say just generically, and th- this is heresy, but I want all of Trump's um, preferred nominees to win their primary because um, that is the way to kind of flush this, you know, Trump power out. Uh, Because if they fail in um, November, of course, Trump will blame it on voter fraud. But um, there there is a, there are a good deal of Republicans that are trying to moonwalk away from Trump. And their failure in November, if it happens, will accomplish that. But I, frankly, I think the, the, the real issue, the larger issue or the larger challenge is to get the black vote out in midterm. Um, uh, I think women are triggered because of the, the by then Roe v. Wade will be officially gone. But Black people have not been given a lot of reason besides uh, fear of losing more rights to come out and vote. So I think that's going to be the larger challenge in November is to get young Black people to turn out and vote. And again, that's why UCBS and the dialogue and the NAACP are so important because unless there are new voices in this um in this dialogue, um, Black people, I mean, we're the ones who are most adversely affected by inflation. We're the ones who are most, you know, as they say, when, when America gets a cold, Black people get pneumonia. So we need to be able to articulate tangible reasons why Black people need to come to the, to the polls, and we need to have candidates that we feel enthusiastic about um, in November. So another uh, you know, thing that has been alarming to me is that GOP seems to be raising, ringing the alarm bells when it comes down to Herschel Walker in Georgia. That this is a guy who hasn't really participated in any kind of debates. He's been avoiding the debates uh, with his GOP rivals entirely. Um, there are swirling allegations of domestic violence around him. But to me, I'll be the perfect candidate to run up against Warnock in the in the fall. Trump endorsed, of course. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on that. You know, Tuesday's coming up. That G- G- Georgia primary is coming up. Stacey Abrams is is going to get the nomination with no kind of competition whatsoever. Um, and so the, the real issue is who is she going to face? And obviously, it looks like it's going to be a rematch between her and Kemp. Um, but Georgia's also enacted, you know, right after we came off the heels of the last presidential election. They didn't waste any time. 
um, and you had some of the same um, voices who are, you know, trying to stand up for the rule of law at that time, now supporting this kind of new measure that is designed to undercut and undermine um, the, the folks' right to vote, specifically when you get into the metro Atlanta areas, uh, when you get to, um, you know, Cobb County and, 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 and um, you know, more, where you have more African-American concentration, con uh, more African-American concentration. What are your thoughts on Herschel Walker's uh, chances? And, and, you know, does this look like it's going to be a Stacey Abrams versus Kent rematch from 2018? I have thoughts, but I'm waiting on you guys. Well, I'll go with it. Then. Well, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled. That's that Herschel Walker, because Herschel Walker is literally an empty suit. Uh, he's afraid to debate because he doesn't know the issues. Um, but uh, his candidacy, and more importantly, the candidacy of Stacey Abrams, uh, I, I, I sometimes listen to Fox. And I heard two weeks ago a Fox analysis of the upcoming election. And the primary point that they made was if Stacey Abrams wins the gubernatorial race in Georgia, she will be the Democratic nominee in 2024. And they said that she is the Democrats' best hope for 2024. Why are they writing about why Biden off in 2024? He's, he said he's going to run for re-election, Professor. You've been watching the news, Michael? <laughs> Ask your cohorts how they, they feel about the Biden administration. I feel like the Biden administration, they're making all these empty promises. Um, we, I feel like we should have held him more accountable to all the promises that he did make when he was running for election. But now that he is in office, that kind of pressure has sort of diminished in a way, in my opinion. Um, so for him running for re-election, I do not think his chances are very well. So why, why, why is that pressure not transferring to where, you know, Manchin and Cinema are? Because the Democrats seem to be pretty much for, for, most, for mo on most issues. When you could talk about Build Back Better's agenda and everything like that. The extension of the top tax credit, um, they seem to be, you know, mostly in lockstep. But Mansion and Cinema, of course, are const the constant sour notes <laughs> in the symphony. So, why haven't these groups, you know, why haven't the African American, you know, voters really uh, held these folks accountable? Now, I know their constituency is who they're looking at, but at the same time, you know, the Democratic organization machine, uh, I think should be spreading more, you know, spotlight on these folks. Yeah, well, I mean, Manchin and Cinema, especially Manchin, come from states where there are virtually no black votes. You know, uh, they're, they're, um, uh, Trump carried every county in, in, in West Virginia. So there is no, no obvious reason for Manchin to be uh, sympathetic with the black agenda, except that um, if you remember in 1964, and, and again, 1964 was a presidential election year. That's the year that Lyndon Johnson passed 
the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that ended um, uh, Jim Crow. So when people talk about mansion and cinema, I'm like, look, Johnson had to deal with the, the, the greatest segregationists that have ever been in the U.S. Senate. Yes, he got help from the Republicans, but that's a president's job. A president's job is to create the political environment that causes people to want to make deals with him. And that's what hasn't been done. In my opinion, the president is acting like he's still a senator from Delaware. And um, uh, uh, the person I hold most accountable is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader. You're supposed to deliver votes. So you need to figure out what mansion and cinema need in order to, to deliver the votes on the things that your base want. Otherwise, we will withhold everything that you want for the people of West Virginia and the people from Arizona. And if you flip, then you flip, but at least your base will know that you're fighting for them. You know, Donald Trump is, to me, in, in, in the same category as Hitler, but politically, he delivered for his base every day, and he let them know that he was delivering for them. We can't say the same about the Democratic Party, and this is why we need UCBS to be effective in, again, formulating an agenda and bringing um, uh, tangible Black votes to that agenda uh, and holding um, candidates accountable for delivering on that agenda. But do you think that this is also an issue about messaging more? Because when you look at the Biden administration and what they've done on environmental justice and establishing the Justice 40 initiative, the first time the White House has had something like this that sheds light on addressing uh, vo uh, environmental racism, really, um, looking at how certain African-American communities, particularly in the South, are um, more prone to being exposed to not just lead poisoning, but you have, uh, you know, being close to having their water, you know, polluted with uh, toxic waste from pig farms and other other sources. Uh, you you look at what they're doing in terms of high, high, appointing more federal judges uh, than any administration going back to Reagan. Um, so, you know, are there success, concrete success, successes there that people are just not aware of? Is my question, uh, and that needs to be promoted more to let people know. Look. We're a 50-50 Senate. If you like what you see, you ain't seen nothing yet. Get us Fetterman. Get us uh, Val Demings in Florida. Get us Tim Ryan in Ohio. Get us uh, Beasley in North Carolina, right? Uh, get us some real Democrats who are going to enact this agenda through. Um, your thoughts? Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm talking too much. Uh, I, I really want to hear from... from my our younger our younger colleagues here so my understanding you're asking so how are we able to like get like our point across to our like senators saying listen even though like we do have a 50 50 split in the senate like we still have more things that are coming Right, right. Like, how do you let them know we have made some strides? We have made we have some accomplishments under our belt for these past two years, um, so that people don't feel like they're they the Democrats completely just sit on their hands 
um, going into November? Like, do you think it's a messaging issue or do you think that, look, there are specific things that you just didn't see in these past two years that you need to see, that you needed to have seen by now? Oh, your... I, most definitely. Um, if you could share, yeah. So, like, we've put all of our trust into our senators and whatnot, trying to, not trying, but in for them to ensure, like, something is going to happen in our backyard, but they don't really see the things that are going on that we see is going on. And it, I feel like they're not really communicating to us specifically how they are working to ensure like these problems are being resolved. Like you were talking about how in the South they're like our water is being poisoned and whatnot. And we haven't really heard much from our senators as to the steps that they are taking in order to uh, ensure that these problems are being resolved. And it's not just going on in the South too. Like you have some Northern states that are dealing with this too, like has gone without clean water for so long. And it's kind of making us seem like these things are never going to happen because if up in the North, these things are going on for years upon years in the South, our voices are not gonna be heard still. Yeah, and I also I also think that some of the things that have been accomplished are good, but they are not the top priority of the base. So it's hard to get excited about some of these things when your voting rights are gone or when a woman's right to choose is gone on your watch. So um, unless and until uh, you see, we see things like, um, high level people being prosecuted for the insurrection, for example, or uh, the president moving aggressively on student loan forgiveness. Um, you, then people can get, get excited about that. I mean, I know, or at least I suspect that the reason, one reason that the president hasn't moved on student loan forgiveness is he's afraid it will stoke inflation even more. And it probably will. But so what? Your base will have three to four hundred dollars more in their pockets because of what you've done. Uh, there are other ways of fighting inflation. But um, when when people see banks being bailed out, but people not being bailed out, they think and properly so, in my opinion, that the Democratic Party has now become the literally small C conservative party, that they're trying to do things the way they used to be done while the Republicans are playing um, war. They're, they're playing without any rules whatsoever. And so until people see their party fighting for them uh, in an effective way, what they're telling you is, well, just give me a larger majority and we'll do better. No, I'm not going to keep rewarding people who have been ineffective. I think that's I think that's insane. You know, unless I see a change in the leadership of the Senate, why would I get excited? Unless I see the, the president um, uh, not not removing Merrick Garland, the attorney general, and getting somebody in there who's more aggressive about protecting this democracy, why would I get excited about 
what they're doing. You're telling me, not you, Michael, but you're telling me, the Democratic Party, you're telling me that after winning Georgia, two Senate seats, seats in a runoff in Georgia, I got to give you more for you to be effective for me. I mean, that's such a weak argument. I don't understand how they get it out of their mouths. And then also, if I may as well, I just feel as though, of course, negative information will always travel faster than, you know, what, what is positive. I think about, you know, unfortunate and deplorable, the deplorable act that happened in Buffalo, uh, that incident that just happened. It's just like um, the first question as black people is, will justice really be served? So it's just like it's it's, it's small things like that. And then even uh, I hate to switch topics so quickly, but even something like, um, you know, the baby formula thing. Um, you knew about this since last September and now it's just not becoming a problem, but now it's out of control. So it's just like. It's not to say that the Biden administration hasn't really been doing good, but when so many things happen that make us question what's really going on with the people that we voted in these seats, it's it's kind of hard to really substantiate that. No, I'm glad you brought that up, Kobe, because I, I do want to ask about you know the, the 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 likelihood of seeing some action on gun control in light of last weekend's events. Um, you know, last weekend we saw, um, you know yet another well, double tragedies actually um taking the lives of 11 americans 10 of whom were engaged in a sunday grocery shopping in buffalo new york in a mostly black community and then you have um you know one of whom was attending a church service in orange county california five of them were wounded in orange county california um and so according to the center for disease, disease and Contr uh, control and prevention around 40,000 americans uh lives about 109 lives per day are taken as a result of gun violence. And then you have Biden, of course, taken to the podium. He had Merrick Garland behind him, the attorney general. Um, I think he had the ATF chief next to him too. He just appointed a new ATF director. Uh, the first time that position has been filled since 2015. Mm -hmm. And you know, the question is, can we expect to see something? You know, We had periods and spurts where we started to have some momentum. And I think one of the, the, the most um, aggressive campaigns as it pertains to gun control uh, has been the, the March for Our Lives campaign, uh, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas campaign that, took, that started, that was launched as a result of the Valentine's Day 2018 mass shooting that took place in that school in Florida. Um, but we haven't really, you know, it's kind of almost becoming a lost cause, almost as if, like immigration, you know, something that we get to seasonally. Um, can we expect to see something done? I know Biden has made a renewed call for Congress to take some action, can we expect Congress to take some action? Um, I know that you know, Sh you know, Schumer has just put some action on the floor as it, as it pertains to abortion rights, knowing that it was going to fail, so that the Republicans' names are forever etched in stone. That you voted against, um, you know, codifying Roe versus Wade. Can we do something similarly, even if it results in favor and uh, failure as it pertains to gun control? Or should we? I can definitely give my two cents on this as well. Um, I believe change is only going to happen if the rhetoric uh, that the Republicans use uh, about these issues is addressed. And I feel like um, with the examples that we've had in recent history with mass shootings and uh, things of that nature, I feel like the approach that many people that are in favor of 
gun control laws and um, you know the Democrats and liberals that are also voting on those type of things. I feel like one of the the main things that we can do to really um, kind of move different to solve this type of issue is instead of coming at it the way we have, we need to really uh, produce moral arguments that have political implementations. Because I feel like with all the examples, like this just happened last week, we can have a mass shooting again, and God forbid, but it can happen again and nothing will really change if left to the Republicans that are sitting in the house. So I just feel like if you attack them morally, who politically will stand, you know, on voting for or keeping things as they are when things are getting worse, you have to attack them in a moral and political way. Wow, I could not agree more because if, if for example, you say you're pro-life, let's redefine what it means to be pro-life. You know, how could you be against banning assault weapons if you're pro-life? You know, I mean, you have to you have to embarrass people with it, with the incredulity of the positions that they're taking. Yeah. And instead of just, you know, the Democratic Party, uh, to your point about messaging, Michael, is always reactive. And when you're reactive, you're, you're reacting in the terms that have been defined for you by your opponents, as opposed to putting them back on their heels, as Colby said, morally. I mean, the the. The positions that liberals take are based in morality. So if that's the conversation, what are we doing losing that conversation? Hmm. And, and, you know, that in addition to the fact that you have Republicans today voting against extended funding to, you know, provide baby formula, right? So. I even heard some Republicans taking to a press conference today saying, oh, well, we've been branded the pro-birth party because we've been, people have been saying that we only care about the birth of the baby. That's, that's not true. Well, if it's not true, why are your, why is your vote not in alignment with what you're saying, right? And so I don't understand how this argument is that's not being made, you know, like we're not hitting home, this argument. People are still able to go to these evangelical churches and hear about how they need to support pro-life candidates they go to these pro-life meetings. They have these pro-life Facebook groups and nobody attacks them on if you're pro-life or challenges them on, I should say, if you're pro-life, then how do you reconcile your position on, you know, the NRA, on mass, uh, um, restricting uh, the availability and, and likelihood of accessing uh, guns to commit these heinous acts of violence? Uh, why, why are you against um, extending the child tax credit, right? <laughs> Why are you against, um, you know, free childcare? Um, you know, the, the, the push for free pub education for preschoolers and everything like that. Why are, why are we just letting back and letting, you know, I've been wondering this for years. Buttigieg, when he ran for president, made the case, but he's the only one I've heard in recent years that has really just hit it home. We're just kind of laying back and just voting on these things. We need to hit it home. Anyone else? Um, just to piggyback off what Professor and Kobe was saying, it reminded me of moral politics of what George Lankoff was talking about, many puzzles that we have for the conservative side that they can't answer and they would, you know, push us up against the wall as in liberals for. I just find it again interesting that 
they are pro-life, but yet they don't do things for the living, which I find very ironic. So I agree upon those points. You know, in, in the last remaining minutes of the show, what's interesting, Professor, is that, you know, I remember talking in our American diplomacy class, mm-hmm. and we talked about how when Obama came into the office, um, and this is just to switch gears a little bit to foreign policy, um, his focus was on shifting the national attention from the Middle East to the Asia Pacific Pacific Rim region. Mm-hmm. And so Biden is coming into the office now. Of course, <laughs> this is after we had the Afghanistan withdrawal and now the ongoing war in Europe. But now he's going to have a, a trip to Asia, his first trip to Asia this Friday. And so one of the things that he's hoping to do is to get some kind of uh, camaraderie between United States alliance, uh, uh, alliances in South Korea, uh, for instance, how to get them back to the drawing board and, and come up with a uh, comprehensive uh, alliance, multilateral agreement, I should say, um, that would be able to withstand pressure from North Korea, pressure from China, um, and establish the United States as still a dominating force in that region. Um, do you think that, you know, in your view, with, with the upcoming trip he has, uh, you know, let me phrase it this way. Um, Do you think that President Biden will be successful in convincing South Korea uh, and Japan, two U.S. allies, that their strained relations with each other would undermine his goal of an Indo-Pacific strategy, given the fact that China's already warning South Korea, hey, you better not do this with the United States, because if you do, you're going to start a a new Cold War. I I don't think that you can be successful in negotiating with any of these partners if you do it as a one-off, they all have to see that there is some some mutuality of interests in order to get them to move in the direction that that you want. Uh, To to kind of pivot, you know, kind of back to Europe just to make this point, you'll notice that Finland and Sweden have asked to be part of NATO. And even though they haven't asked to be part of NATO, even Switzerland, who was neutral in World War II, okay, has been siding with NATO against Russia in the Ukraine war. So when people understand their mutual interests, you can get them to do almost anything. And again, Finland and Sweden have been neutral for decades, and now they are applying for entry into NATO, they're putting aside their their uh, issues with Turkey because there is an immediate threat that 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 has captured their attention and made other issues secondary. Joe Biden's going to have to do the same thing in Asia to get uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, the Philippines. Uh, Vietnam and others to move in a direction that helps him. He's also uh, challenged by um, the his his need to satisfy his base on the issue of trade. Um, and so I don't think that there's been any comprehensive political thought being put into how he's approaching. Um, the Asian challenge 
because I think they're still stuck in a 20th century um, um, mindset of we are America. If we come to you, you'll want to talk to us because we're the United States. I don't think that that, that framework works anymore without um, integrating the interests of all of the players. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that the South Korean president, who I believe he was just uh, he just took office this year. Um, one of the things he wanted to see from Biden was new tactical nuclear weapons along the uh, Korean border. Um, and, you know, of course, you have Kim Jong-un and his sister saying, look, we are even, to, you know, and I think they kind of adopted a George W. Bush uh, doctrine there. We're willing to use preemptive strikes. You know, if we feel as if we're going to be under attack, we will use nuclear nuclear weapons. Do you think that President Biden is going to comply with the South Korean president's wishes and place tactical nuclear weapons along the U.S. command in South Korea? Do you think that's even a, it, it, that's even on the table in your view? It's very unlikely that President Biden will agree to placing nuclear weapons on South Korea soil because there's history there that caused the U.S. to remove these back in 1991 after the threats from North Korea necessitated acting in hopes that they would abandon their threats to utilize their own nuclear weapons um, program. So in recent events on the part of North Korea that they show are testing out new nuclear weapons calls um, for some form of action. And as the threats have resurfaced and been acting upon towards South Korea, however, Biden, he'll be more likely to suggest an anti-missile system that he hopes will um, counteract the threats from North Korean missiles. Any other thoughts? I think that was a, a incredibly strong answer there, Tiffany. Yeah, I, I think that was right on the money. Um, yeah, I, I just think that the president needs to be willing to um, ramp up his his rhetoric, um, uh, not only in Asia but but in Ukraine. I mean, you have Putin making nuclear threats. You have uh, Kim Jong-un making nuclear threats and the United States trying to look like we are the adult in the room doesn't respond in kind rhetorically. And I think, again, we're in a different era. I think we're in, a, in an era, I basically think we're in World War III right now. And um, the world needs to understand that if we are, in World War III, because if you look at the history of the run-up to World War II, it looked just like this. Um, if we are indeed in World War III, the only thing that bullies understand is a bigger bully. So trying to be diplomatic, trying to be um, uh, 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 an internationalist doesn't resonate with these bullies. You have to let them know that you are ready, willing, and able to decapitate them before they'll pay any attention to you. And I know this doesn't sound like the Christian thing, but I'm just talking about the real politique of dealing with irrational actors. You know, they, they are rational to the point of, as they said when, when they asked Mike Tyson after he lost his, his heavyweight title, did you have a plan? And he said, Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, so. Um, are we able to ask questions or? 
Okay. Do you think if Biden is able to like get an Indo-Pacific um, union going on, do you think that is like a way to show like these bullies, like uh, what's it called, like Russia, that we are serious about um, what is going on and whatnot? I, I think, you know, well, number one, Russia and it's in the interests of Russia and China to have stability in the world. Uh, when there's instability, when there is, uh, <coughs> um, you know, the eradication or, 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 I guess, faltering of multilateral agreements, um, when there's insecurity about some of these agreements and you've got a, lo a lopsided war where you have basically the entire in uh, international community on one side of the equation and Putin on the other, I think that's something that undermines uh, China and Russia's goal of becoming a dominant superpower. Um, so I think, you know, the president's, of course, he and his goal of building a coalition with Japan and South Korea, he's hoping that this nuclear threat uh, that North Korea is waging or, or, or constantly bringing up can bring these two countries together. And I think that's a safe bet. You know, I, I think, you know, honestly, if anything, the Trump administration has taught us it's the fact that we it's an it's it's crucial to international interests of the United States that the United States has a strong military presence in that country. And you had advisors constantly taking memorandums off the president's desk when the president said, I want to bring our troops home for Christmas from from the Korean uh, <laughs> on the Korean border. They said, Mr. President, if you do that, you're going to start World War Three. Well, we're seeing the importance of having an important uh, military presence there. Uh, and so I think, you know, the White House, of course, using this as leverage. Uh, in the international dismay um, in the ongoing war with Russia and Ukraine, I think is a, is a smart thing. And I think the Indo-Pacific um, alliance has a strong chance of succeeding because of all of the self-interests involved, Japan and South Korea. Um, and I think it, I'm very happy to see Biden continuing where Obama left off as it pertains to our policy in that part of the world. Um, you know, he, nipped it in the butt with, when it came down to Afghanistan um, and dramatically shifted the nation's attention uh, away, even though folks are bringing it up for political purposes, you know, in the long run, I think it's going to be something that benefits him and puts him in a place of history. Anyone else? Yeah, I've been, I've been critical of the president a, a lot this evening, but I think to Michael's point, the president did the right thing in Af Afghanistan, both um, uh, strategically and politically. Uh, no one really cares about Afghanistan right now in terms of uh, what was done. But uh, I'm pivoting back to Zoe's question because this, this is not necessarily my position, but this is, this is the counter argument to these um, uh, coalitions like NATO or the Indo-Asia uh, Indo uh, theater. Uh, when the Cold War ended in 1991, there were memos in the State Department from um, Hawks that said that it might not be in, in the best interest of the United States and its NATO allies to expand NATO because doing so will, will pose a threat to Russia. And if you look at Putin's polls, his polls are high because Putin has convinced the Russian people that the West is basically getting ready to invade Russia. Um, 
I know it sounds implausible, but local politics counts. Uh, I think the same could be true in Asia, that if we overplay our hand in Asia and create a, a, um, an alliance that seems to be a threat to China or North Korea, et cetera, that could have unexpected consequences. So I, I think the thing to do is to do this, as I think you young, younger people would say, on the low. Um, and not to flex so much that you create uh, a perceived military threat to Kim Jong-un or to China. Well, Professor Foster, Zor Dorset, uh, Tiffany Taylor and Colby Matlock, I thoroughly enjoyed having you guys on uh, the panel this evening. Um, thank you for sharing some enlightening information about the United Collegiate Black Scholars, UCBS and what the important work that you all are doing. I'm excited uh, uh, to see what you all do as someone who was an original member of this organization. I, I am si I'm excited to see how it's continued uh, with you guys and, and what you guys are gonna bring to the table next year. And also I'm, I was glad to pick your brain a little bit about not just domestic politics, but international politics. So thank you guys so much. I thoroughly you know, appreciated each of the insight that you brought to the table. And I'm grateful to each of you for making time. Without being said, I'm gonna go ahead and conclude episode 65, episode 65 of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you guys so much uh, for those tuning in. And I just want to, thank you, thank you. And I, for those tuning in, I just want to extend my uh, plea for you guys to go ahead and tune into reputable sources of information and to even challenge those sources with other sources uh, before you adopt positions as your own. With, you know, we're in an age where there's so much information out there, so much misinformation, so much facts that are not 100% uh, accurate. And so I just want to go ahead and encourage those who do tune in on a nightly, a nightly basis to do that. Thank you guys so much for what you brought to the table once again, and good night. <laughs> <laughs>